1 Samuel chapter 2 this evening. If you're with us this evening and you're without a Bible, you'll almost be lost on a Sunday night without a Bible. So just raise your hand and one of the guys coming up the aisle right now will get one into your hands and you can follow along not only with your ears but also with your eyes. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We pick things up in chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. And uh, we remember that we're studying a, a book called First Samuel, and it's named after the chief character of the book, a prophet, the last of the judges, and, uh, well, really, technically, um, uh, well, yeah, la- kind of the last of the judges in that period of Israel's history, also a prophet, and uh, one of the most special men, really, in all of the Bible, this man by the name of Samuel. But we haven't run into him as a man yet, In these early chapters, we're learning about his childhood, and uh, last time we were together, we saw that he had been dedicated to the Lord by his godly parents, a father by the name of Elkanah, and also a mother by the name of Hannah. He has been delivered to be mentored in the things of the Lord uh, to the high priest of Israel at that time in a city called Shiloh. The high priest's name was Eli. And so we pick things up. Chapter 2, verse 22. Now, Eli was very old. You can say that about men. You don't get away with it uh, the other way around. But he was very, very old. And late in his life, this is always pretty miserable, he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women, so uh, sexual immorality, and they were also priests under their father. They lay with the women, and uh, not only were they involved in sexual immorality, but they, uh, they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so this is the kind of thing that the Canaanites were doing and the pagan nations around them. They considered these the tabernacles of these temples as being holy places. And so they would engage in this kind of thing. And this is what they're doing, completely contrary to God's word. And we saw last time we were together that they were also ripping people off in their offerings that they were bringing to the Lord to such a degree that when people would go to worship the Lord at the tabernacle in Shiloh, I mean, they just, they just had this feeling, you know, we're going to run into those two crummy sons of Eli and they're going to steal the offering from us that's meant for God and they just caused God's people to abhor the offerings that they were making to the Lord and or abhor the whole experience. They loved the Lord and they wanted to do this but they were really making a terrible mess of things and as if it couldn't get worse here, uh, they were married men and they're involved with with women in this way, while at the same time being uh, priests, claiming to represent God in Israel. And so Eli said to them, so first he hears uh, all of these, uh, this information that is based in fact, and so he said to them, and the problem with, that Eli is going to make right here is that uh, what they were doing required far more than a saying. It required far more than a rebuke. Uh, he should have... Uh, uh, taken their robe from it, from them, and torn it in two, and kicked them out of the priesthood so fast that their head would spin over this. Was they were way past the point of of being rebuked. But he said to them, "Why do you do such things? 
For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear, for you make the, peop- the Lord's people to transgress. And if one, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, and that's what they were doing here, in the name of the Lord, sinning and, and pulling God's name into it, who will intercede for him? In other words, what hope can such a person have? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. He was going to judge them at this point. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. And so uh, he rebuked them and he warned them that God's judgment was going to come uh, upon them. But uh, he doesn't do what needed to be done, and that was just to bust them down and right out of the priesthood and made made an example uh, of them. It's interesting, as we mentioned last time we were together in this passage, is an interesting kind of context for God to raise Samuel, one of the great leaders in the nation of Israel, in. I mean, he is he's just a pup. He's just a young guy. And, uh, and he knows about all this hypocrisy and all the things that are going on. And, and I want to bring the lesson out again. There's so much. We, we can get so bitter about our pasts because of bitter experiences in our lives. And say, why did God allow that? Why did God put me in that kind of a circumstance? And you can look at Samuel and say, why would God put him in this? Such a, a context of hypocrisy and open sin and just terrible examples of these two sons of, of holiness and what a priest should be and the father is weak and all of it and, and everything. And, and again, I could wish that everything that I learned in life, I learned by watching people do it right or by doing it right the first time myself. I would guess about 80% of what I learned that really gets driven home in my life is where I see someone else do something wrong or I'll flub on my own, maybe not in this way certainly, but, but you, you learn from other people's um, poor examples that they, they make and then you determine in your heart, Lord, I don't want to be that kind of priest. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to impact that way. I don't want to be that kind of a reflection on you. And it's a powerful way to learn. And I think, you know, we've, every one of us as descendants of Adam and Eve and all of us are adult children of sinning parents is a very large self-help group. So we got, everybody's, been, everybody's been served up with a, on a gigantic platter enough for all of us to be bitter over something in life. But sometimes the Lord allows that so that we can look at that and say, I don't want to be even remotely anything like that. And, and it's a good way to learn a lesson. And it's the way that Samuel is learning here too. One of the things that God is faithful to do in Samuel's life that he's also faithful to do in our lives is that even though he's in the middle of this mess, God has a call on his life. God has an anointing on his life so that he is going to safely navigate the hypocrisy that, that he is witnessing and in the middle of. Listen, everything in life testifies to the veracity or the truthfulness of God's Word. Everything preaches the Bible. Everything preaches the Bible. All goodness preaches the Bible, all wickedness preaches the Bible, everything in between preaches the truthfulness of God's Word. 
All you have to do is just watch these things play out one, two, three, four, five steps every time God's Word is proven to be true. All of life is a lesson. It's just what classroom are we in at the moment. And God has the ability to overwhelm everything, work all things together for good. And then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, so prophet, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt uh, in Pharaoh's house? And did I not choose him out of all of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod uh, before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? So this prophet shows up to Eli and says, Listen, you, you are a high priest after a long line of high priests that go all the way back to Moses' brother by the name of Aaron, who I called to be high priest following the exodus out of Egypt. And basically what he's saying to Eli here, and to the sons also, but principally to Eli, is, listen, haven't I always taken care of you as priests? You've got a portion of the offerings, you've had food, I've never failed you, so why in the world are you stealing my offering from my people? So he's, God's just letting them know, I'm watching this whole thing. And there's no reason for this going on, because I've always been faithful to you, always will be faithful to you. You don't need to be, your sons don't need to be resorting to these things, and you be turning a blind eye to it. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place. And then here it is. And honor your sons more than me. To make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. So that taking of the best of the animals that was to be offered to the Lord. These sons were taking those portions to themselves. And uh, because Eli allowed it. God spoke to him, in and it's a powerful rebuke. It's a really good lesson for us. And he said, you honor your sons more than me. Jesus declared, and he said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's interesting that God rebukes Eli here. It doesn't rebuke the, the son's uh, directly, and the rebuke that the Lord gives to Elias for honoring his sons above the Lord because he permitted the abuses uh, to continue. And, and so here is uh, the, he's, he's aware of the sins of, of the sons, and, uh, but w- what he comes in here is he, he, he's not rebuking the sons, rebuking Eli because of his failure to restrain them and to discipline. That was his fault. These aren't kids growing up at home. These are grown children of the high priest. And what our children do once we've raised them, what they do with the godly heritage that's been given to them, we can't control that. They can value it, use it to advance themselves in the kingdom of God and their personal relationship with the Lord, or they can throw it all away and become like the sons of Eli. We can't control that. 
But what we can control and we are responsible for is how we respond to that. And Eli had a responsibility here to discipline them and publicly kind of take them down from their position. And his failure to do so was, God looked at it and said, you honor your sons more than me. And it's an interesting statement because it's not only given in the context of ministry, but it's also given in the context of child-rearing. How many of you tonight are live in a situation day to day where your faithfulness to God's Word and His commandments has at least strained or cost you a personal relationship in your family? Just a show of hands, how many of you have paid that kind of a price? It's very broad, isn't it? And, and this is the thing that he's facing. And when we hit those places and the decisions that our children can make in this, I mean, you just, it's a miserable place to put a parent. But it's a regular place that parents are put in. And the, the neat thing about this thing being included in the Word of God and this example of Eli, I really like Eli a lot. But this is, this is where he failed in his life. And, and it must be because... This is, of course, a great temptation to all of us as parents, especially when they're growing up, but especially as as they're grown. That thing where we look and say, if I make this stand, I've got to choose between standing for the Lord or overlooking this thing over here. And and we just see the consequences that are going to occur if we make a stand with the Lord. It's going to strain the relationship. It's going to cost the relationship. Those kind of things. And we need to obey the Lord. And to give him our obedience to work with in order to get these people turned around. So these sons are not going to get turned around. And uh, Eli waits way too long before he's going to... He never does give God his obedience to work with in the situation. There's tremendous pressure in this culture that we live in. Because the kids, I mean, by the time they're... 12, 13, 14, I mean, what, what is out there for them to grab a hold of by just clicking a button on some kind of a machine today? The access of what's out there to draw them away, pull them away into, you know, who knows uh, what kind of stuff, the accessibility of that. And we need that to just bolster our heart. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what we're about. That's what this household is about. And then, then pray that they won't throw it away in, in their adult life. And so, impor- so important when we, that push comes to shove that we honor the Lord more than our children. And therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor. And those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. Again, in the context not only of ministry, but of child rearing. I want the Lord to, I want to honor the Lord, and then I want Him to honor me. And I know you're just like me. And behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And part of the judgment is that no family of Eli, his memory of his 
uh, of his family, members of his family, would reach old age. And you shall see an enemy in my dwelling place, speaking of the tabernacle in Shiloh, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And we know as we get into a couple more chapters, we're going to see that the Philistines evidently sacked Shiloh and also uh, the tabernacle when they defeated the children uh, of Israel, just as the Lord had, had said would take place. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, Anhophni and Phineas. In one day they shall die, both of them. And the Lord said, you won't deal with it, then I know how to deal with it. And then I will raise up... You know, it's an interesting thing. The Bible says in the New Testament, be not many masters or teachers or leaders in the body of Christ, for they will face the harsher judgment. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that I will face a harsher, more strict judgment by God than uh, many other people in the body of, of Christ. There's a higher standard for leaders. Sometimes people look and say, I don't want to be in the fishbowl and, and all that. Well, you better count the cost of that uh, ahead of time because something more is required to, to hold some of these positions. And so there's the grace for it and all. And, uh, but God, uh, God can be very, very firm in his justice and his judgment, even in, in the new covenant. I think about Ananias and Sapphira. I think it's in Acts chapter 5. They are introducing hypocrisy into the purity of that early church and uh, they, you know, God smote them both dead. doesn't mean that they didn't end up in heaven, but he made an example of them, that they were, they were claiming to represent a holy God and they weren't being faithful uh, to that. And so how, how would that be for a church service? Tomorrow in the Modesto B, six dead at Calvary Chapel. Seven dead at Big Valley Grace. <laughs> Eleven dead at Shelter Cove, because they're not as good as us, you know, over there. In the <laughs> a little more hypocrisy over there. I'm just teasing, you know I am. So God bless you, Pastor David and Pastor Garth, the rest of you. They know it's the truth. I don't really have to apologize. <laughs> Verse 35, And then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to all that is in my heart and in my mind. So God, I said, I'll get rid of them and I'll raise up someone who cares about what I think and what I feel. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. And as we're going to see, this prophecy will be completely fulfilled in the next few chapters. Now, the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Remember, this is the time of the judges where people were doing what was right in their own eyes by their own definitions of right and wrong rather than uh, God's definitions of right and wrong and obeying the Lord. And so God just went silent on them. 
Uh, he wasn't speaking through the prophets. He wasn't speaking through the priests and all. So nobody was hearing from the Lord, and, and that was a consequence of the sinful condition of the nation. And it came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down in his place there at the tabernacle in Shiloh, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, he's very elderly, no cataract surgery in those days, no trifocals, no big thick, Coke bottle, you know, whatever all of us are wearing these days. I'm very thankful for all this stuff. But they didn't have those kind of things, and so he can barely see. His, his eyes have gotten so bad. And before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the, of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down. So somewhere in the vicinity of the entrance of the tabernacle there in Shiloh, which was a large tent that was a place where children of Israel worship, uh, Eli is going to sleep, apparently some kind of compartments around there that allowed that. And Samuel, young guy that he is, he's sleeping probably right near the opening of the tent, and his responsibility was to keep the lamp of the tabernacle. What they would do is the menorah that was a part of the furnishings of the tabernacle, they would fill the little uh, you know, bulbs with oil, enough oil to burn through the night. And, uh, and so uh, evidently this is uh, moving more toward dawn, still dark but late in the evening and uh, because the oil is kind of running down a little bit just before the, 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 the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle. So this is kind of how things are happening and where people are laying and ministering. And the Lord called Samuel, and uh, probably Samuel. And uh, Samuel answered, Here I am. And so he ran to Eli, thought Eli was calling him. And he said, Here I am for you called me. What are you doing? It's 3.30 in the morning. What do you mean I'm calling you? You ever heard me call you at 3.30 in the morning? And he said, I did not call Lie down again. Oh, daydreams. And he's a bad dream and all that. So he went and he lay down. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. And so Samuel arose and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And Eli said, I didn't call you, my son. Go lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. This is a new experience between him and God. And the Lord called Samuel a third time. And he arose and he went to Eli, still thinks it's Eli calling him. And he said, here I am, for you did call me. Kind of thinks he's doing a game with him or something to test his faithfulness. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. And therefore Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and it shall be if he speaks to you that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so Samuel went and he laid down in his place. I guarantee you, he didn't get any sleep. <laughs> now here's your mentor. He's, he's under 12 years of age, and he's been serving the Lord and all. Nobody's heard from you know, God very much, a prophet in the last chapter, but it's pretty quiet. And here he hears from his mentor that God is trying to speak to him. God personally, not through a prophet, God personally is speaking to him. And so just go lie down and when you hear it the next time, just say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. I mean, his eyes have got to be this big. And he, think about the excitement. I, mean, I hope everybody's experienced it. I don't mean to put anybody down if you haven't. But you might remember the first time God spoke through you in a spiritual gift, a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or a prophecy, or He 
spoke to you to say something to somebody. You experienced the supernatural of the, of the Christ, Christian life and how exciting that, that experience is. And so here he is, so excited, and he's been told when God speaks, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And the idea is, tell me anything and I'll do it. That's, what, that's good instruction from Eli. Say to the Lord, don't wait till he tells you what he's asking of you to agree to it. When God speaks because he's so wise and he's so good, when he begins to speak, you can unfailingly say to him, Lord, I agree to obey you in whatever you're going to say even before you say it. That's a great way to go to the Word of God. I like saying that at times to the Lord before I open up the Bible for my morning devotional. Lord, I want to look into this mirror of your Word. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Not you, Kyle. Great. I got that. Let's take a look at what we got. I love the Word of God. I mean, it's true. It, it, it tells me stuff nobody else will tell me. And I need to hear it and I need to see it. But to be able to look at the Word of God and to just say, Lord, even before I turn to it, or I'm going to listen to a sermon, or we're going to study it on a Sunday night or some other time, and say, Lord, because who you are, and just to honor you and to respect you, I agree to obey everything that I'm going to read in these coming chapters now, even before you give life to them in my life. That's what God's worthy of. It's a beautiful thing that Eli's teaching him here. Now the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak for your, Lord, for your servant hears. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now you don't want to hear God say that about you. You ever heard a bell? You ever been close to a gigantic bell that has rung and then you walk away from it and your ears are still tingling from it? Produces a physical reaction in you. God said to Samuel, I'm going to tell you some news of judgment that's coming that's going to produce a physical reaction in you. Your ears are going to be humming and buzzing. It's, it's going to be so heavy when you hear it. And so he kind of warns him of that. He said, in that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows. He and I have already talked about it. Because, here's the reason, his sons made themselves vile. And then here's his responsibility. And he did not restrain them. Well, uh, Samuel had been witnessing that for about 12 years. So he knew the truth of it. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. In other words, there's no changing this judgment. And so Samuel lay down until morning. And uh, again, oh man, I said he's heard about what God's going to do with Eli. Again, no sleep at all. And then he opened up the doors of the house of the Lord. He begins to do his morning responsibilities. And he probably doesn't want to run into Eli. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. So he's going to keep it a secret. Now, Eli's been around a long time. He's a very old man by this time. And Eli called Samuel and and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, Here I am. 
Oh, I hope he doesn't ask what God told me last night. And he said, what was the word that the Lord spoke to you? He knows he's not going to, you know, Samuel's not going to just blurt it out. He said, please don't hide it from me. And then he pulls the trump card, whatever that is. He said, God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. All right, uncle. And then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it's good. Let the Lord do what seems good to him. And so he had failed as a father, but in his relationship with the Lord and his ministry to the Lord, uh, beyond that, he looks and, and he stays faithful to the Lord. He's making the right choices now. I, you know, you can't, I can't, you can't change, we can't change what we did yesterday. We can't change what we did ten years ago. But we can change the decisions that we make from this point forward. And so here's a point where he says, all right, I'm going to do what I haven't done all these years. But, but the rest of my life, I'm going to learn this lesson. And, I, and so I'm going to honor God over my sons now. And, and so he did, he did what he could at this point. Let him do what seems good to him. And so Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And, and that's, that's the guarantee of success in any ministry. So Samuel grew, the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground or fail. Every time he spoke something in the name of the Lord, God made sure that every single thing that he spoke came to pass. Never allowed that, uh, his, his words to, to fail. And as a result of that, all of Israel, from Dan all the way in the north to Beersheba, all the way in the south, they knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. And so his credentials as a prophet were uh, publicly established by the Lord in that everything that he prophesied and said, spoke from the Lord, came to pass. Now, that's pretty valuable. That's about a, a thousand and uh, all, if any wanted, anybody wanted to hear what the Lord had to say on something, they could go to Samuel. That's a tremendous resource for a nation. Let's get them on the ballots, any ballot at this point. Dog catcher, I'll be happy. And then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then chapter 4. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped against Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And so uh, there was this, the Philistines were kind of the perennial uh, uh, primary uh, enemy of the children of Israel at that time. Uh, the uh, Philistines had kind of settled down in the area of Joppa and uh, Ashdod along the Mediterranean coast, southern Israel, kind of driven the children of Israel inland. And so they still bordered uh, upon each other, and there's always a battle for territory and all. And so hostilities rose once again uh, between them. And uh, so Israel went out under some kind of a provocation by the Philistines, went out to battle uh, against uh, them. And so one camped in Ebenezer, the Philistines encamped in Aphek. And then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. Now the Philistines were much more sophisticated than the children of Israel in terms of technology. They were much better armed. Uh, in those days, at this period of time in Israel's history, 
Their, all their weapons were sticks and things like this. Uh, the Philistines were able to uh, uh, smelt iron, and so they, they had weapons that were uh, superior. They also had, as we're going to see in a few chapters, quite a few chariots. And you notice there in, at the end of uh, verse 2, the final three words, in the field, this battle took place out in an open field where the Philistines were not only able to use the the metal of, of their weaponry, but also able to effectively use their uh, their uh, chariots and to really bring a, a decisive, uh, uh, you know, defeat on on the children of Israel. Four thousand men of the army uh, they died in the field, and so they uh, held their ground, but they sustained uh, terrible, terrible losses. And again, the children of Israel—they would have been out. They just—they were just a bunch of farmers with basic, you know, kind of tools that they were going out to, to fight with, and so it was a slaughter. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders, leaders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And so they blamed God for their defeat. Now remember, this is all occurring during the time of the judges, where again, Everybody, in general, the nation of Israel, everybody is doing whatever is right in their own eyes and uh, rather than what was right in the eyes of God. So by and large, they're living a life of just willful disobedience against the Lord and rebellion against God's uh, commandments. And yet when the tragedy and the defeat occurs, uh, they all decide that it must be some fault on the part of God rather than because of their own sins. And... I hate to really think about how many times I've heard that kind of a thing through the years as a pastor. And I, I think we really have to be careful of this. So many people that I've run into really tragically, and they're self-deceived on it, they walk away from the Lord years before, and they just begin to live a life that is nothing like the Word of God. And, they, and then they become a casualty of the world. It's a, that's a rough place out there. This world's a rough place. This is a real fallen place. I mean, you don't even have to factor the devil in for, to, to realize this is a tough place. And, and, and you want to walk close to God, you throw the devil in who's going to target us, especially as, as God's people, then it even gets harder. So they go out and do this thing and everything gets all messed up and everything and then and, and they get wiped out and then they want to shake their fist at God and how come God didn't and that kind of thing. And, and you... You know, you can sit there and look at them and kind of blink and think they're going to crack a smile here or something like this. I mean, surely no one is, is so evasive of their own personal responsibility they're going to blame God for every lousy decision that they've made over the last three years that's put them in this mess. And yet they do. The capacity for self-deception that, that we have. And uh, so that's what they, they do. They're going to blame God for all the problems that they brought on themselves. But it's not God's fault. God's a blessing God. He's just looking for a chance to bless our lives. And, to, uh, uh, and, and it's our obedience that allows Him to bless us as fully as He desires to do so. And so they're going to blame God. And then notice what, what happens uh, next, They decide, all right, what we need to do is we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh uh, 
uh, some miles away and then bring it out into the battlefield that when it comes among us, and then notice the next word, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. And so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark. There's the oversaw the transportation of the ark of the covenant. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now, when Israel sends for the ark of the, the uh, covenant, essentially what they're doing here is they are lowering the ark of the covenant onto the level of a good luck charm. They're just looking to this Ark of the Covenant, and I'll explain what it is just in just a moment. They're looking at it to be just kind of this gigantic rabbit's foot that they can bring from Shiloh, take it into battle, and magically it will provide them with a victory no matter how disobedient a life that they're, they're living. So this is what they're thinking that they can do. And um, you can bring the Ark of the Covenant, you can bring the whole tabernacle out in that uh, battlefield. It's one of the great lessons of the passage. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. It was the most holy article in the tabernacle and ultimately in the temple. It was so holy, it was the single furnishing in the Holy of Holies at the tabernacle. It was so holy that only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies on one day out of the year. And he could only stand before the symbol of God's presence one day out of the year and only after a sacrifice had been offered for his own sin and had been applied to the mercy seat or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It represented the holiness of God. And God called for the children of Israel, for their high priest, when he would go in that one day out of the year, that he would wear a robe that had bells at the base of it. So that when he went into the room, if they stopped hearing jingling, they knew that he went in there, you know, willfully sinful, and God would smite him dead right in the room. Evidently, enough of this happened during Israel's history that they added to the Word of God and they would send the high priest in not only with bells on his robe, but they would tie a rope around his ankle so if they heard the bell stop, they could pull him out. You got a dead high priest in the Holy of Holies. Who's going to go in and get him out? If he couldn't stand, who could stand? So they said, all right, we're smarter than the average bear. This is how we'll handle it. But the Ark of the Covenant was the great symbol, symbol of God and, and of His, His holiness. They said now, and it's just insane what they do here in reducing it, as I said, to, to a, good, a good luck charm. And, and, what, and one of the reasons behind what they do here it has to be a, a complete disregard for the holiness of God. I mean, they knew all of this. And now they're going to pull that out of the Holy of Holies and they're going to bring this thing out into the middle of a battlefield that only one person was to see one day out of the whole year? No appreciation 
for the holiness of, of God. The second thing, and God makes it very, very clear in the passage, is that while it was to them, and they speak of the Ark of the Covenant there in verse 3, I told you to take note of it, they called it an it. It's just an it. How many of you had a rabbit's foot when you are growing up? Show of hands here real quick on that. I know it's completely politically incorrect today. How lucky could that be? How lucky was it for the rabbit? How lucky could that rabbit be? But we got them, you know, and they're dyed purple and blue and all kinds of different colors, and we wore them because we were kids. So, but this is, this is what they, they've got going on, uh, you know, here in, in, in this. They just look at it. This thing is an it. They're not thinking about God behind that ark. They're not thinking about it in relationship to him. It's just a good luck charm that they're going to bring out in, into the battle. It is interesting that in verses 3 through 5, the Lord repeats the phrase, the Ark of the Covenant, four times. It wasn't just an ark. It wasn't just a box. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what they forgot. It represented a covenant that had been made with God. And one of the items that sat within the Ark of the Covenant was the two tablets of stone that God with his own hand wrote the Ten Commandments on and delivered them to Moses. And that Ark of the Covenant was named after a covenant based upon the Ten Commandments and the law that declared that if they would obey God, God would bless them. And that if they disobeyed God, that God would rise up and resist them and if necessary, Curse them. They completely disregard the covenant side of things. So they look at it and say, I can continue to live a life of disobedience to God, but we can bring the box into the battle, and somehow even the box that's supposed to symbolize the holiness of God and the presence of God, that can undo our disobedience and we won't be defeated in battle. It will never happen. Not in any covenant with God. Not in the old covenant, not in the new covenant. There's only one solution to deliberate, willful disobedience to God, and that is confession of sin and repentance. Even the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's holiness and the symbol of God's presence, cannot undo the disobedience in a child of God's life. And so that's the way that they view that. And you say, well, you know, that's, I mean, that's something that they did a long time ago. I mean, nobody's superstitious in that way today. You want to bet? <laughs> How many people look, and, and maybe even some of our own lives tonight, it's why we go through the Word. Mirror, mirror on the wall. The, Bible, the, the Bible's called a mirror in the Word of God, and it is. How many people just week in and week out just live in some area of their life, just de deliberate, willful disobedience to God. And they say, well, it's okay because I go to church every Sunday. It's really okay because I go even on Sunday night. Or I'm involved in the children's ministry. Or I'm involved in this and this and this. And we begin to think that because of these, these, all these things are like good luck charms, they're going to overwhelm the disobedience. So this is, this is what they, they do here. Now, unless you think 
boy, Jesus, you know, he's, he doesn't, uh, uh, you know, operate that kind of way. John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Just our simple obedience to the Lord allows him to bless us on the, to the degree that he wants uh, to bless us. And so the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the presence of God and uh, the fullness of his, his true presence in their lives required obedience to the covenant. So the repetition of the covenant, of the covenant, of the covenant. Ladies and gentlemen, for the most part, gentlemen here in this uh, passage, you are forgetting the covenant part of this whole thing. So the Ark of the Covenant uh, of the Lord went, verse 5, into the camp. All Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. They are so excited. Beat them, bust them. That's our custom. Beat them, bust them. That's our custom. Yes, I used to go to sporting events in high school. Boy, was that dumb. I feel rather embarrassed, actually, at the moment. On, on things. So, but here they are. They are so excited uh, about this. They've got tremendous faith. Now we're going to win the battle. And I think you can have great faith in the wrong thing. And, uh, and that's exactly what's happening here. They're on the wrong side of God. And so when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, I mean, there's got, what in the world's happened over there? They said, what does the sound of this great shout of the camp of the Hebrews mean? What's, what just happened? And they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, and so the Philistines were afraid. So their first reaction was, was confusion. What in the world's going on over there? Second one is, is fear here. They said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, I we're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So here they are. They are remembering. They, they got a little bit wrong. They think that Israel's gods are plural. Israel had just one God, the Lord, Yahweh. And, and, but they're remembering back three, four hundred years to the time when the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt by the hand of God, and, and that's still a part of their history lesson. They thought, oh no, the guy that wiped out, the God that wiped out the Egyptians has come into their camp. We're through. Verse 9, be strong. They began to encourage one another, though, and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you uh, do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourself like men and fight. And so, this had a reverse effect on them. Rather than uh, the Ark of the Covenant coming in and producing fear in them, they were more determined to fight even more fiercely the next day. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And so it was an absolute rout, and there was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. That's a slaughter. And also the Ark of the Covenant was captured in the battle, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, they died in the battle. And then a man of Benjamin, he ran from the battle line that same day. They'd have runners that were running back. Right now we, we go on the Internet, find out what's happening on the other side of the world. They would r send runners to report 
the, the uh, progress of the battle. He goes from the battle line and the defeat there. He came to Shiloh where Eli was and the tabernacle was and all. And, he, and as he comes in, his clothes are torn. Dirt is on his head. These are signs of mourning. And it just it represented the fact to tear your clothes represented that your heart was torn. Uh, to have dirt on you was to represent that you had put yourself down to the ground in the dirt and, and, and humbled by the situation. So when they see that runner coming in and he's covered with dirt and his clothes are torn, he doesn't even have to open his mouth almost for them to realize, uh-oh, this can't be good news. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting by, uh, on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Evidently, he didn't like that ark going out there. And when the man came into the city and told it, all of the city cried out, we've been defeated. And when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, the lament of the people in the city, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? He can't see. He's trying to put pieces together with just his hearing and all. The man came quickly as he hears Eli ask the question, and he told Eli, what had happened? Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he couldn't see. And when the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? And so the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. And also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off of his seat that he was sitting on backwards. And this hits him like a ton of bricks. Uh, and he falls backward by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken in the fall. And he died for the man was old and heavy. And he judged Israel for 40 years. And so this is the end of, of his ministry and all. And, but the, the whole uh, word that he gets and the thing that uh, sends him into maybe some kind of a stroke or some kind of a shock or something is the news that the Ark of the Covenant uh, was taken. It was, it's interesting that when he hears that his sons have died in the battle, it produces no reaction in him because that had already been prophesied. He knew they were going to die as a part of God's judgment somewhere. But what he did not ever expect to happen is for the Ark of the Covenant, the great symbol of Israel in the midst of, of God in the midst of Israel, that it would be taken captive and, uh, and that really wiped him out. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, so he was a married man, she was with child and due to be delivered, so full term. And, and all this is happening at the same time. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. So all this news comes in and induces labor. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Don't fear, for you have borne a son, which would normally be good news. But she didn't answer, nor did she regard it. And then she named the child Ichabod, which means no glory, saying, The glory has departed excuse me, from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law 
and her husband. And she said, and this is the explanation for naming her son Ichabod, no glory. She said, the glory has departed from Israel. Here's the reason, for the ark of God has been captured. And so you probably have in this woman a very, very godly wife of a very, very wicked man. And uh, she hears the news, and she hears about the death of her husband, the death of her father-in-law, and the the single great uh, thing that impacts her in the series of all of these events for herself is the fact that the Ark of the Covenant had fallen into the hands uh, of of the the, the Philistines. And so um, she... Uh, you know, a, a godly woman and, and, and great concern for what this would mean for the, the nation. Nope, we'll stop right there. Chapter 5 has got too much in it to head into that. Just, just allow me a moment here. It's a kind of, here. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good place to stop. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the greatness of your heart toward us as your children this evening. Jesus, you said that if we, being evil by comparison to you and our Heavenly Father, as earthly parents, know how to give good gifts to our children, and we do, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And Lord, we just acknowledge tonight the pleasure that blessing our lives brings to you, the desire that is on your heart to bless our lives in such a way that it completely changes us and produces such a quality of life that it will be the sanctified envy of the rest of the world who would then desire to know you and obey you also. And Lord, we are so thankful for all of the blessings that simple obedience brings into our lives. Thank you for the life, Lord, that is ours as Christians. But Lord, tonight we just think about your heart And we think about your desire to bless and to give from your Father's heart to us this evening. And I just pray for my own heart and for all of our hearts. We pray for one another this evening. If there's anything here this evening that is robbing you of that joy and of that opportunity, any disobedience or rebellion in our lives, 
that you would just by the mirror of your word and just by your spirit put your finger on it. So as we just close up in the final part of this service, we can confess it to you and turn away from it, Lord, and then return to the relationship that is both a blessing to us and to you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of the ways that you have given us to bless you and to show our love to you. And we thank you, Lord, that one of those ways is our obedience. Thank you, Lord, tonight for the covenant that we have with you, not based on the Ark of the Covenant or the Law of Moses, but upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for our Savior this evening, Lord. Thank you for week in and week out conforming us in a greater measure into the image of Christ, into his image. We notice your work, Lord. We notice your faithfulness in doing that in our lives. And we appreciate it. And we commit ourselves to you this evening. And we ask that you would, in your, if you should tarry, to give us another week, Lord, of being made more and more like him. And we ask it in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.